open as you find your seats look in Revelation 22 and we'll begin reading with verse 6 now last week we looked at the first five verses but technically speaking those five verses fit best with the previous chapter chapter 1 has that great description of the new heavens and earth and then beginning at verse 6 of chapter 22 technically speaking we have the epilogue, or the closing section of the book. Now, if you were to look at the best commentators, even the best commentators, they tend to say very little about the epilogue beginning at verse 6. And I think the reasons are many. Perhaps in some cases, they just ran out of steam. We've been going up and down all the mountains throughout the first 22 chapters, and or 21 chapters, and then into the beginning of chapter 22. And then when they get to verse 6, they just kind of lose steam. But I think another reason is because there's a lot of repetition. In fact, the beginning of the book in chapter 1, and the end of the book here, beginning at verse 6 in the last chapter, are very similar. In fact, we're going to see they're almost identical in many ways. And so they've already commented on the previous, and so I think they just feel little obligation to comment on the latter. But nevertheless, we're going to take a little slightly different approach and divide up the uh, epilogue, that's verses 6 to the end, in three units and consider them in subsequent weeks. And so tonight, we're going to look only at verses 6 to 11, and then God willing, 12 to 17, next week, 18 to 21, the following week. So we got three, God willing, three more studies in our book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 6. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He, is un- he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, Let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Now I want to suggest there's basically three things in this passage. There's, first of all, an imminent return. And we're going to see that in verses 6 and 7, and then also verse 10. And then secondly, we're going to see... There's a restricted worship, and that's right in the middle of the passage, verses 8 and 9. And then we're going to see much more briefly, verse 11, an eternal destiny. An eternal destiny. Now there's a sense in which the imminent return of which I speak, as you find it there, especially in verse 7, is the reoccurring theme of the epilogue. In fact, three times you find it. Verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. But I want to take a few minutes and just review um, uh, 
our minds on the subject of Christ's imminent return. Now, you probably know the term imminent means near or looming. Christ's return is near. Christ's return is looming. Jesus says himself in verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. Now, if you look back to verse 6, that's kind of a preface to the statement. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly, that word shortly is the same word translated quickly in the next statement, take place. In other words, whatever it is that John is talking about in verse 6 that must shortly take place, it's one of the same in verse 7, that will quickly take place. So by quickly or shortly is really meant speedily or without delay. He's coming soon. That's the idea, isn't it? Now you find the same thing down in verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. And so if you look at the end of verse 6, things which must shortly take place. Verse 7, I am coming quickly. And then verse 10 at the end, the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. These are all saying fundamentally the same things. That Jesus Christ's return is imminent. Now to seal the words of the prophecy would mean a delay in their fulfillment. It's probable that John is thinking back to the last few verses of Daniel. Remember, we've seen that John often leans on Daniel as one of his Old Testament sources. And at the end of Daniel 12, uh, God tells Daniel to seal the, the words of his prophecy. That means there's still a, a ways away yet to be fulfilled. But here, the opposite is um, commanded, and that is, that John is not to seal the words of his prophecy. It's just another way of saying that all that the book of Revelation foretells as a prophecy is soon to take place. And all of that will take place, most evidently, according to verse 7, when Jesus comes back. In other words, everything that the book foretells about Jesus' second coming, his judgment upon his enemies, and deliverance of his beloved people, is all at hand. Now, you probably know that almost all of the New Testament writers, to some degree, lived with the expectation that Jesus' second coming was imminent. They believed it was near. And so what I want to do here as we're considering an imminent return is to suggest a few things about the imminent return of Christ. And these three things are found right here in our passage. First, with regards to Jesus' imminent return, it's next. It's next. By this I mean it's the next event that will happen in the prophetic time uh, timeline of Scripture. Now this doesn't deny that the Scriptures do indicate, seemingly, and I would uh, concur with this, that the scriptures do indicate that there will come a time of apostasy just prior to Jesus' coming. 
uh, how long this apostasy would take, the, um, the degree of the apostasy, but never, uh, I don't know, and, and nobody really knows, but nevertheless, the scriptures seem to indicate over and again that things are going to get worse prior to Jesus coming. Now, things are bad now in many ways, but I think it's going to get worse than what it is. For example, remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That day, the second coming of Jesus, will not come unless the falling away comes first. But what I'm saying here is, accepting that apostasy, that falling away, there's no other event that has to come before Jesus' second coming. In other words, the second coming of Jesus is the next event that will take place in the fulfillment of, of God's prophecy. Now, if Christ's second coming is imminent and thus next, that means there's nothing else we're waiting for, and if there's nothing else we're waiting for, that sinks, that does away with many Christians' view of end times or last things. For a lot of Christians, unfortunately, for the last 80 or 100 years, they've believed this error that there's other things that have to happen before Jesus comes. There's the secret rapture, there's the seven-year tribulation, there's the thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. But according to classical eschatology, classical understanding of last things or end times, the second coming of Jesus Christ is the next event in the fulfilling of God's redemptive purposes. We're not waiting for anything to happen except Jesus coming. Now, I could take the time. Uh, uh, we don't have the time, but we could go and look at all the parables that Jesus taught, all the teaching that Jesus taught, all the teaching that the apostles taught about how Jesus' second coming is imminent. How we're not waiting for anything else. We don't know when Jesus' coming second coming is, but it is imminent. That's what we do know. If there was such a fictitious uh, fulfilling of those steps that I mentioned, a secret rapture, seven-year tribulation, and a thousand-year reign, well, then we could date Jesus' second coming, couldn't we? We could date it from, from the day of the rapture for a, a thousand and seven years because there's a seven-year tri uh, tribulation, supposedly, and a thousand-year literal reign of Jesus on a literal throne, in a literal temple, in literal Jerusalem. But we know that Jesus said himself that no man knows the time of his second coming. So we can't date it. All we can say, brethren, and what we ought to say, is that it's imminent and thus it's next. Jesus' second coming, his bodily return, is next. Derek Thomas put it like this, Since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, only one significant event remains, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now if we go back and look at the Old Testament, we'll find even there that it, it foretells all, all the time, and Jesus foretells all the time, about how he was to be crucified, buried, resurrected, and come again. 
and he's fulfilled all of those. He did come the first time. He was crucified. He was buried. He was resurrected. He did ascend back to the right hand of the Father. He did pour out the Holy Spirit at, at the day of Pentecost. And the only other historical event that we're waiting on is Jesus' physical, bodily, literal, imminent, and final coming. All right, so first, it's next. Secondly, it's certain. Look back at verse 6. These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And again, what are, are meant by things that must shortly take, uh, shortly take place? Well, again, verse 7 is Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming must take place. It must take place just as much as his first coming had to take place, his crucifixion had to take place, his burial had to take place, and his resurrection had to take place. Remember, these are historical events. These are historical facts foretold in the Old and New Testament scriptures. Verse 6, these words are faithful and true. Now, these two descriptions, attributes of Scripture, of course are true of all Scripture. All Scripture, all the words of God are faithful and true. But here, most evidently, they refer specifically to the book of Revelation. Now, this phrase, faithful and true, the, the coupling of these two attributes together, is found four times in the book of Revelation. Twice they refer to Christ himself, and the other two times to his word. For example, Revelation 3.14, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness. That's talking about Jesus himself. Chapter 19.11, he who sat on him, that is the, the horse, was called faithful and true. Again, it's a, a reference to Jesus. And then the last two times, it's a, it, it, it refers to the scriptures. Chapter 21, verse 5, write, for these words are true and faithful. And then our text, 22, 6, these words are faithful and true. In other words, the trustworthiness of the written word is based upon the trustworthiness of the living word. The first word faithful means trustworthy or reliable. And the second word, true, means without error or falsehood. These are really, uh, these are classic texts to shed light upon the character of the Scripture. Remember, the character of Scripture, the, reali the reliability of Scripture, the trustworthiness of Scripture is based upon the character of its author. Right? A man's word is only as good as his character. And here we find that the word of God is faithful and true because its author is faithful and true. The scriptures are trustworthy and without falsehood because Christ himself is trustworthy and without falsehood. And so, Jesus promised, verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Is that promise something that's reliable and certain? Yes, why? Because he himself is reliable and certain. Behold, I am coming quickly. Brethren, this is the promise of our beloved Savior. Jesus' second coming is certain. 
And it's certain because Jesus' word promises it. Or we could say Jesus promises it in his word. Now this obviously ought to be a tonic against all manner of opposition to this fact. There's lies from without that would cause us to question whether or not Jesus is coming back. And then there's doubts and fears within that would also seek to question whether or not Jesus is coming again. In fact, when I uh, opened up my three screens on Monday, one for Sunday school, one for the AM sermon, one for Wednesday night, it was evident that there was a lot of similarities between the three themes. Sunday school, 2 Peter, AM, intercessory prayer, that doesn't have a lot to do with this necessarily. I could tie it in if I had to, but it's the third one, the first and the third ones that, that more tied together. The first one was Second Peter, and the third one was Revelation 22, 6 and following. Now just stop and think of Second Peter too, or Second Peter. Second Peter is largely written to combat false teaching that was taking place in the church. And one of the dominant false teachings of the false teachers was what? Remember chapter 3? They were, they were teaching that Jesus' second coming was a lie. They were denying the second coming of Christ. And what does Peter do to combat that lie? He says that even the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, he equates the two, by the way. It's a really a, a beautiful text to give us some insight again into the nature of inspiration and the scriptures. He says the prophets, that's Old Testament, and apostles, that's New Testament, both testify that Jesus is coming again. In other words, he bases, or he, or he combats the error with an affirmation of the truth. We're going to see that Sunday morning, God willing, in Sunday school class. That the, the primary way in which Peter combats the lies is by affirming the truth. He underscores the truthfulness of Scripture. That's exactly what we have here, don't we? Brethren, this is my point. When liars on the outside and liars on the inside team up to question whether or not Jesus is actually coming back, the only remedy to fight against those lies is standing firm on the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Holy Scriptures. This is what we learn, don't we, from Revelation 22. And it's also what we learn from, first of all, Joe Beakey. He says, the first reason why we believe Jesus is coming back is because God's word says it. That needs to be said today because so many called evangelical Christians put more stock in how they feel about things than in what scripture says. That is totally erroneous and dangerous. You and I are to believe that Jesus is coming back simply because God's word says so. Another testimony comes from Richard Brooks. He says... Um, in speaking about these words, trustworthy and true, he says it's evident, while it's true of the whole scripture, 
is specifically true of the book of Revelation. And then he says this, We have read many strange things, many amazing things, many delightful and many terrible things in the book of Revelation. But one thing is sure. Everything we have read is true. All the messages of salvation, all the warnings of judgment, all the statements about history, trustworthy and true, are two great words that characterize everything about God and thus everything about God's holy word. Because remember, with Jesus coming, there's judgment and salvation. And so Jesus coming is certain because the word of God testifies to it. Christ's second coming is next and it's certain but verse 7, it's motivating. Behold, I, come, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, he no sooner mentions the fact that he's coming, built upon the certainty of his word, verse 6. He then makes an application of it in the latter part of verse 7 in light of the fact that his coming is imminent, is next, is certain and sure, then we ought to be those who are keeping, present tense active, the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, as I said, the epilogue, which is what we're considering tonight, verse 6 and following of Revelation, is very similar to the beginning of the book, of Revelation. In fact, you have an identical text in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. In other words, the nearness of Christ's second coming, the certainty of Christ's second coming, ought to have a powerful influence upon us presently as we wait. Now, as I've taught you many times over the 15 years that I've been among you, this word keep, there in verse 7, also back in chapter 1-3, he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book literally means to treasure so as to esteem. That may not always come readily to mind we think of uh, one important aspect of keeping, and that's doing. But there's important parts that come before the doing with regards to this word, keeping. In fact, I want to suggest that uh, there's really um, a threefold keeping that's embedded in this Greek word. It means to guard, it means to cherish, and it thusly means to obey. The blessed man guards or keeps the word, and here particularly, again, we can apply it to the whole scripture, but it's speaking specifically of the book of Revelation. The blessed man guards or keeps the word of this prophecy from error or corruption. And he guards it, he keeps it as you would a treasure because he esteems it. He cherishes it. 
The blessed man loves and cherishes the word as true riches. And brethren, this includes, in fact, it specifically refers to the 22 chapters we call the book of Revelation. He esteems it as great value. Tragedy of tragedy. So many Christians have distorted the meaning of the book of Revelation that most Christians are afraid of it. And they lose out on the blessings because if you go back to chapter 1, blessed is the one who hears and heeds the words of this book. The 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. And then it ends with a, 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 an identical blessing. It begins and ends. It, it's book ended with blessing for those who keep, cherish, guards, and obeys the words of this prophecy. In other words, the book of Revelation was written to be kept. It was written to be cherished. It was written to be understood. And here's my point. Why does the blessed man guard, cherish, and obey? That is, keep. Why does he guard, cherish, and obey the words of this prophecy? But because... Christ's return is imminent. He wants to keep the words of the prophecy of this book in light of the fact that Christ himself is coming. I mean, we'll, we'll see this here in, in, a, in a few weeks. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. And that's red letter, and it's, and it's probably rightly so that it should. Again, it's the words of Christ. And then notice the response of the church as found in John. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In other words, there's an anticipation, brethren. Not just with regards to a doctrine. See, it's just tragic but and sad that many Christians have reduced the second coming of Christ to a doctrine. And sometimes even a doctrine that has to be debated and argued over. Because so many Christians have believed distorted truths or teaching about the second coming of Christ. Do you know our fathers, when they spoke of eschatology or last things or end times, they typically reduced it down to four headings. Death. Resurrection, judgment, and heaven. That's, that's our end times, brethren. Jesus is going to come back, and, and, and there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, and some are going to go to heaven, and some are going to go to hell. But when you cloud those simple great truths with all of these, quote, fantastic, these fanciful, these teachings that make good books and movies, it clouds the truths. Here's the, here's the truth of eschatology, simply put. Remember Pastor Sam's books, Eschatology, made plain, made simple? Well, we can even reduce Sam's books, Pastor Sam's books, down and even make them more simply. Verse 7, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Be ready for me. And here's one way in which you're made ready 
for him. You're found keeping the words of the prophecy of this book. Guarding, cherishing, and obeying the scriptures. And it says, blessed is he. What, what's the blessing here? Well, the blessing here is that we're going to see Christ and be with Christ. I think this is what he means in verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So there's a blessing that awaits us, and yet there's a blessing that, present, that we presently enjoy as we anticipate it. So if you want to be blessed, according to Revelation 1.3 and 22.7, then be those who keep the words of the prophecy of Revelation. All right, that brings us then, secondly, to a restricted worship, verse 8 and 9. After John hears these grand and glorious truths, he falls down to worship at the feet of the angel. And yet, how does the angel respond? Verse 9, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now, we found that John did the same thing back in 19. It's just that he's so overwhelmed with the, with the truths that, that he's encountering. He, for the second time now, falls at the feet of the messenger. Now, brethren, that's not a good thing, but I think it's something that we can at least understand. John is so overwhelmed with the grandeur of these truths. And now having heard the very word of Christ as mediated through the angel, he falls down at the foot of the angel. I mean, we can understand that. It's wrong, but nevertheless it's understandable. The angel was speaking as the mouthpiece of the lamb. And he falls at the feet of the messenger. And the messenger subtly rebukes him and affords us at least two great lessons. One, worship of the created is forbidden. No angel, no Christian, regardless how exalted or privileged, is worthy of worship. And look how the angel puts it. Verse 9, for I am your fellow servant. Yes, I'm exalted. Yes, yes, I'm being used as a very mouthpiece of the Lamb himself. Yes, I've never known what it is to be removed as an elect angel from the special presence and glory of God. And yet, I'm your fellow servant. All right, so angels aren't to be worshipped even though they're exalted beings and privileged. But what about prophets? Surely a prophet, he's a mouthpiece from God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, or else even the apostles. Should they be worshipped? No, the angel then says, and of your brethren the prophets. So as exalted as angels are, as privileged and important as prophets are, neither of them ought to be worshipped. And then he goes on, as if he anticipates an objection. What about the, the uh, keepers of the words of this book? What about the rank-and-file Christian, the faithful ones, who serve Jesus even to the end? He says, and of those who keep the words of this book. In other words, you ought not to worship any created being 
irrespective of how privileged or exalted that creature is. And here's why. Because the creature isn't worthy of worship. Right? That's what he says. Now, brother, nobody here, and, and I can say that rather dogmatically, appreciates church history more than I do. In fact, I get in trouble all the time. Oh, you elevate the writings of the fathers. You elevate the writings of confessions and creeds. No, that's not true. I just value the gifts of Jesus that he's given to the church, and most of them are dead and in heaven. But brethren, not one of them deserves our worship. Not Luther, not Calvin, not Edwards, not Owen, not Boston, not Bunyan. No angels to be worshipped, no prophets to be worshipped, no saints to be worshipped, regardless how much we prize and treasure their writings. Worship of the created is forbidden. Secondly, worship of the creature is commanded. And that's found in the last phrase of verse 9 in two little English words. Worship God. God and God alone is worthy of our worship. Now you likely know that the Greek word translated worship literally means to bow or to kiss the hand. And it refers to, or thus it refers to supreme reverence. Supreme reverence. No one is worthy of worship save God. Nobody is, wor is worthy of supreme reverence except God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, if you remember, throughout the book of Revelation, we find that the Lamb is worshipped. You probably know that texts like this um, are, are, are texts used to underscore or to prove the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called God. He acts like God. That is, he does the works of God. And brethren, he's treated as God. He's treated as God. He's trusted and he's loved supremely. Remember, he said, you have to love me more than anybody. And he's worshipped. Nobody is worshipped but God. And because the Lamb is God, he's worshipped. Worship God. That's a simple little text, isn't it? Don't worship the created, but only the creator. All right, that brings us then finally to verse 11. And the eternal destiny. When you first read through verse 11, it's possible that it doesn't make sense. But if you just back up and keep it in context, I think light shed upon it. It's talking about when Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Simply put, Christ's return will end all possibility of salvation. The condition you're found in when Jesus comes back will be the condition you'll remain in for all eternity. Now that doesn't deny that Christians are going to be perfected. 
It's just simply to say that there's continuity between what they are now and what they will be. We're righteous now. We're righteous positionally, but we're also righteous practically. That's the emphasis here. Yes, we're not perfectly righteous. And we sin much. But nevertheless, we are righteous. And you know that the scriptures everywhere describe Christians presently as practically righteous. And if you're not presently practically righteous, you're not a Christian. This text says that, doesn't it? It describes Christians when Jesus comes back as those who are practically righteous and holy. They're those who are what? The blessed ones who are keeping the words of this prophecy. And so there's going to be continuity between their present state and their eternal state. They're going to be perfectly and immutably righteous and holy. But they are already righteous and holy. And, and conversely and tragically, those who are found unjust, that means unrighteous, and filthy. Again, it's talking about moral filth. This is all talking about morality and the lack thereof. Those who are found to be wicked. Those who are to be found unjust and filthy. When Jesus comes back, they will remain unjust and filthy for all eternity. The unjust and filthy will remain unjust and filthy. The righteous and holy will remain righteous and holy. Let me make two quick quick applications from this. One. What a wretched place is hell. Brethren, stop and think. Hell is the place where all the unrighteous and filthy sinners dwell for all eternity. What a wretched place. I can't even begin to imagine. Just think of some place here on earth where there's a bunch of wicked, wretched people. I could think of some places. That's nothing in comparison to what hell will be. One of the torments of hell is the companionship that you will forever keep for all eternity. You will forever dwell in the company, in the congregation of the unjust and filthy. Secondly, what a blessed and happy place is heaven. We love to be among the saints in part because they're righteous and holy, generally speaking. Brethren, what is this but just a preview, a foretaste of heaven? Heaven is the place where righteous people, where holy people dwell together for all eternity. Friends, there's no second chance when Jesus comes back, okay? And that's another error of all these faulty systems that have been imposed upon the church over the last 80 years. They believe that when Jesus comes, he raptures raptures away the church and people get saved after he comes. No. When Jesus comes, there's no salvation possible for anybody. There's no seven years where people will get saved. There's no thousand years where people will get saved. When Jesus comes back, where the tree falls, it lies. And it lies for all eternity. Without any possibility of change. Now let me back up for a second. We're talking about Jesus' second coming. 
But you know what? This principle is true also for you when you die. When you die, you fall into heaven or hell, and there's no second chances. Now, brother, just ponder it for a second. People die every second in this country. One person dies every second in this country. And somebody will die in Akron or Canton tonight. And depending if they're filthy or clean, unrighteous or righteous, when they die, they fall into either heaven or hell. And there's no second chances. Where the tree falls, there it lies, and for all eternity. Well, we'll end with that, and God willing, come and see that uh, basically you're going to find the same themes in verse 12 and following, and that's probably why the better commentators just skim over it, but we're going to get it largely repeated three times over the three weeks. But nevertheless, brethren, I trust that the Lord will write his word across our hearts and give us grace to guard it, cherish it, and obey it. Well, ordinarily we